Uh, for, for those of you that don't know me again, just my name is Marshall. Uh, I have the joy and privilege of belonging to Sojourn uh, in kind of a unique way uh, these days. I uh, actually had the great joy and privilege of planting Sojourn Montrose uh, almost six years ago. Um, and now I've sort of stepped out of the primary leadership role there um, to really strengthen our efforts at being a family of churches uh, that plant more churches. And so I serve uh, Sojourn Houston at large as uh, the pastor of church planting. And so uh, it really is a joy to be with you. This, uh, this kind of experience for me just always reminds me uh, what, I, what I'm really a part of. It's very easy um, for us to look at everything that's happening in our local congregations to be concerned about those things, uh, whether it's wet paint um, in the parking lot or whether it's uh, missing coffee or whatever it might be, um, and, and maybe to get discouraged or maybe to, uh, to think sort of exclusively in those terms. And yet what the Lord is up to um, is so much bigger than that. Um, and, and I think of it in terms of uh, sort of ripples in a pool. Um, that's, our, that's your immediate circle. But then there's Sojourn, which is sort of our, our, our more immediate family uh, in Houston. But then the Lord is doing a marvelous work of church planting throughout Houston. Um, I don't think that we as local churches are, are very aware of it, but the, the energy that is being poured into church planting by churches of all different kinds and stripes uh, in Houston is really amazing. I, I, I'm like, as someone who lives in these circles, let me just tell you that there are people from cities like New York and Boston and Chicago that are looking at Houston and going, whatever's happening there, we want to see happen in our cities. And so we, we live in sort of this privileged season of God's unique work in Houston. And so let's lift our eyes uh, on those things. And this, this does that for me, being able to see your faces here, um, getting here early, seeing you guys serving, putting things together, the most menial tasks that you could possibly imagine. And yet the Lord is honoring and using that work for the sake of his name in Houston. And so I'm just utterly, utterly encouraged uh, to be here every time I come here. And again, I don't know most of you, but for whatever reason, there's a fondness in my heart uh, that the Lord has given me for you, uh, even in the brief times that we've spent together um, this summer. And so uh, just know that I bring you greetings on behalf of all of the Sojourn staff, um, but especially from Sojourn Montrose as well. Uh, where I still reside as a local elder um, and where my family lives and does ministry uh, in the same ways that, that you guys do here. And so, again, just want to bring a word of encouragement to you in those things. Thank you um, for your faithfulness to Jesus and to his mission in our city, in this part of the city that we uh, in Montrose don't have the privilege to inhabit, but you do. Um, and so we're trusting the Lord's work in you and the Lord's work through you uh, for the Galleria and beyond. And so... Um, yeah, bless you. Um, if you're a guest, I'll just briefly encourage you to take whatever means of connection uh, you're most comfortable with, uh, whether it was just meeting someone during the passing of the peace or if it's filling out the connect card. Again, uh, we, we really believe that the church is more than just an event to attend on a Sunday, but it's a people to belong to. Um, and so would love for you to experience the fullness of what Sojourn is beyond this brief time together here uh, this morning. And Austin was correct. We continue our sermon series uh, through the Exodus. And we do that this morning, remembering that the Exodus is our story. It is not the story of some irrelevant foreign nation. 
Uh, It is the history of God's holy nation into which we as Gentiles, those of us who are non-Jew this morning, have been grafted in. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 gives us explicit license to read the Exodus as a narrative that directly applies to our 21st century Christian lives. And so the Exodus is both our family history and it is our present reality. As I said last time, Uh, I was here, we are an Exodus-shaped people with an Exodus-shaped Savior doing Exodus-shaped work in a world that desperately needs an Exodus. And so let's, as we go to his word this morning, ask the Lord uh, to be with us, teaching us, instructing us, and ultimately transforming us by the renewing of our minds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning again, Lord, just grateful to be gathered together as your people called by your name and now sent for your fame. Lord, we know that we need you this morning. We are as helpless as Israel. The enemy behind us, the sea in front of us. And we need this morning, just like every morning, your new mercies, your deliverance, the hope and joy that come in faithfully walking with you into the waters, knowing that you, Yahweh, are our present, our protecting, and our way-making God. So Lord, we ask that you'd be with us. We ask that you'd teach us, shape us, mold us, all of the work that we're incapable of doing on our own. Everything that we are insufficient for, Lord, you are more than sufficient. Your cup runs over. May it run over on us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, so as I was reading through commentaries this week, um, I read a a really uh, sort of unique take on or not necessarily a take, but a, a, a unique understanding of this event in the context of the Old Testament. This is what uh, that theologian said, and I'm struggling to remember his name because I read too many commentaries, um, but um, I'll credit him somewhere, someplace. But this is what he said. <laughs> this is what he said. In, in the New Testament, the seminal event of the New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus, right? No, no questions asked. That's what... That is the thing. That is the thing in the New Testament. Everything uh, is, is proceeding towards that event and then everything flows out from that event, right? And we, we would probably even go so far as to say that that is the seminal event in human history, right? That is the fulcrum upon which all of human history turns. Well, this theologian made the case that the seminal event of the Old Testament, that the, the, the seminal event where God is most clearly displaying his power, where he is most clearly displaying his character, his nature, putting himself on display for us to see, for Egypt to see, for Israel to see, the, the sort of cosmic scope of what he is up to is this event. The crossing of the Red Sea, him giving safe passage to his people out of the clutches of the nation of Egypt through the waters of judgment in the Red Sea to the new land that is to come. And so like the resurrection, there are many things that could be said this morning. 
So many. (laughs) If all of the world's oceans were ink and all of the world's trees were pens, we would run out. Before we exhausted the glory of God in the resurrection or the glory of God in the exodus of his people. And so with that said, I've got a a, a tall task and a lot of text before me. And so here's what I wanna do. All all I'm going to do, and it it might feel a little bit scattered, it might feel a little bit all over the place, but that's the nature of the text, I feel. But I wanna talk about three aspects of God, three things that I think God really wants to see us about him in this text, three things that I think are necessary to a right understanding of who he is and ultimately to a right understanding of how we should then live in the world. And we'll just go one by one. And we'll start with chapter 13. And I'm gonna read just a small portion of what we read, but this is what it said. It says that God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Not the shortest way, but the way that he wants them to go. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So the first thing I want us to just observe, okay? And again, we're we're touching on this and then we're moving along because there's so much here. But the first thing that I want us to observe is that this Yahweh, this God, this God of Israel, the God of our people now in Christ, our Yahweh, our God is the present God. He's present with his people. And certainly in this moment, in the history of God's people, God is present with Israel in a unique way, right? He's present with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you know, here's the thing. I think a lot of us uh, tend to read the Old Testament and we go, man, that is awesome. That is so unique. I, I, if, if I were just there, if I had this visual, if I had this visual of God's presence with me, that, that's just, it's It's unique. And I think in some ways, maybe there might even be a tendency to to romanticize it a little bit. Like, well, surely if I was there and if I saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, well, then I would, of course, trust and believe in the Lord. I would not doubt his presence. It is physically there. It is observable, an observable phenomenon. And yet, when we draw this out, when we draw this understanding that God is a God who is present with his people, and when we step forward into this new covenant that we have with Christ and this new relationship that we have with God now in light of Christ, we need to understand that although God is uniquely present with Israel in a unique way in this moment, he is far more uniquely present with you and me now. 
right? It's Jesus himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, embodied in a way that we can understand, see, touch, feel, know him, right? Jesus himself says, it's better that I should leave so that the helper would come. So that the spirit that I'm going to send to you will be with you. And so here's the reality, brothers and sisters, when the spirit descends upon the church in Acts chapter two, when the spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, God no longer dwells around them. God no longer dwells in a visible location before them, but he dwells in them. And so listen, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh, our God, the God of the church is the present God. He is present with us. And he's not only present with us, brothers and sisters, but now by his spirit, he's present in us. And so the same confidence with which the people of Israel walked into the wilderness, walked into this odd way of going, right? Not the quickest way out of Egypt, not the most convenient way out of Egypt, but the way that the Lord led them was because of his presence with them. Brothers and sisters, that same confidence is available to you and I. We can walk with the same confidence into our God-ordained world. Every morning when we wake up and we put on our boots or we put on our pants, our shirt, walk out into what is unknown, what is wild, what is different. We can rest in the knowledge that Yahweh, our God, is a present God. He is with us in the wilderness of our world today. And make no mistake, I know, I know it feels far more wild today than maybe it ever has for many of us who grew up in the United States. And yet God is all the more present with us than we could ever hope, understand, or imagine by his spirit. So Yahweh is the present God. But he's not only the present God, he's the protecting God. This is what happens in the first 14 verses of chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp before the sea, facing the sea. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, he predicts what Pharaoh's gonna say, that they're wandering in the land and we should bring them back, right? Bring those people back. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, what did he do? The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed for the people. What is this that we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, just like the Lord said. Just like the Lord said. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. That's not what they said. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Again, right, what a moment. What a moment. We're gonna see that come to reality, right? We're gonna see Moses' words proven true. We're gonna see that happen in front of us in this text this morning. And again, there's this temptation to believe that if we were there, that, that if we'd seen that moment, that somehow our faith would be different or bigger or stronger. And there is this unique way that we're tied to them historically. We are God's people. And at the same time, God protects Israel uniquely here, but he is all the more uniquely protecting you and me right now. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse three, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, get this, verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, in this, verse seven, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, what we are being encouraged to do here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is is to, through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, to now look at our lives in such a way that no matter the circumstance, whether there be a sea before us and an enemy behind us, to know that we are being guarded by God's own power through faith, for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. Make no mistake. Okay, the, I don't think the Israelites are unreasonable here. We give the Israelites a lot of stick for people who are so much like them. You can't blame them. There's, okay, listen, like uh, the sea is different in this time, right? Like for us, it's like, well, let's just hop on a boat. Or let's fly over it. Or submarine or channel, you know, if you've ever been to England, whatever. But in this moment, it's like the, you go around, that's it. And the, the world's most advanced army is right behind you. They literally have no other option. But, but faith in that moment, that's, that's all they're given. That's what Moses calls them to. 
He doesn't try to explain, well, we're gonna build this and we'll go under or we're gonna go around this way. Or it. He just says, listen, listen, this is our option. The Lord's led us here. The Lord who brought the plagues upon Egypt. The Lord who kept our firstborn safe from the angel of death. The Lord who led us through the wilderness. He's led us here. And so you know what? Stand still. Stand still. And there's a sense in which, in 1 Peter, because of Jesus, we're being told again, stand still. The Lord is the one who is guarding you by his power for this salvation that is ready to be revealed. You don't see it, right? They don't see the new land that God is leading them to. They don't see Canaan. They don't see the land filled with milk and honey. They see an ocean and they see an army. And Moses says, behold the Lord your God. Fix your eyes upon him, upon Yahweh, the protecting God, the one who has protected us thus far and will protect us into the land that is to come. Step foot into the water and he will protect. That's why Romans chapter eight is as glorious as Romans chapter eight is. Right, isn't that also what Paul is telling us at the end of that chapter? What does he say? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You guys want to add anything else to that list? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If the Lord chooses you and sets you apart, you are his, period. End of story. He is your present God and he is your protecting God. There is nothing that can change that. But Yahweh is not only our present God, he's not only our protecting God, but he is our way-making God. And this is what happens in the remainder of Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 15. It reads like this. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know, they shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There he is protecting. 
And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them, on their right hand and on their left The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians, the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel the literally most unintimidating force in the world at this point. Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned, covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And just like I've said for every single point this morning, this is a marvelous event, glorious in so many ways, so glorious that you and I now, several thousand millennia later, are still talking about it. The Lord made a way for his people. But listen, we have also this great privilege historically of of living where we do in time. Knowing that God didn't just make a way for Israel through the desert, through the waters of the Red Sea, but that God has made a way for us in Christ now that is far more glorious than even this most wonderful of events. That you and I now pass through the waters of judgment though Satan chase us and we are delivered to dry land and our enemies crushed because Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, because Jesus died the death we deserve to die, and because he rose in victory over the sin that enslaved us and the master that would not set us free. Jesus has victory over both. And so God has made a way, brothers and sisters. He's made a way for us, not only through the judgment, the waters of his own judgment, his own just wrath towards sin in our hearts, but he's made a way for us through all the peril of worldly living. 
He's made a way for us in Christ to be made whole. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We get to come to the Father through him. We get to call this God, this terrifying God, right? This God that both Egyptian and Israelites go, we don't want any part of that. It's that God that now through Jesus, we don't just call him Yahweh, which is his name. We call him Abba. We call him Father. He calls us son, daughter. In fact, the same words that he says of Jesus at his baptism, he now says over you repeatedly because of what Jesus has done for you that you are his beloved child in whom he is well pleased. Yahweh, the God of protection, Yahweh, the present God, Yahweh, the way-making God is your father in Christ. And listen, this is, this is not new um, in any way, shape, or form. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I want to just illustrate that briefly um, by reading two portions of Scripture, one of which will be very familiar and one which maybe isn't. But the first one is this. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. With me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely the goodness and mercy of God shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the people in Israel... They'd spent 400 years in slavery. There's biblical evidence that they've forgotten God. That they've worshiped the gods of Egypt, even. And so for them, this idea of a God who is present and who is protecting and who is making a way for them, that might be far away from them in these moments. But as history continues for Israel, it becomes a bit more familiar. In fact, I mean, we see David here. What's he saying about Yahweh? What's he saying about God? He's saying, God is my present God. God is my protector God. God is the God who will make a way for me, even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil because why? He's present with me. 
And brothers and sisters, that is only all the more true, all the more gloriously true for us now in Christ by the Spirit. This is the God who was, who is now, and who is to come. And let me show you how I can know that it is the God who is to come by going to Revelation chapter 18. And I've concluded with like two really weird texts both times I've been here. Romans 9 last time, Revelation 18 this time. We'll be okay, I promise. Revelation 18, this is what happens, or this is what it says. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. In the same way that God saw the evil of Egypt, remembered his covenant with his people and brought judgment to bear, at the end of all things, God will remember his covenant with us in Christ. He will see his people and he will bring his judgment to bear on all of the iniquity that has surrounded us for all this time. And this is why the people of God should rightly, unashamedly cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come, come soon. Because that day will be wonderful and glorious. We will look behind us and we will see the sea with the devil and all of his minions and all of our accusing and besetting sins swallowed up in the final victory of Jesus. And us, having been called out of Babylon, having been called out of the world, will sing a song of praise. That's what happens in Revelation 19, right after this text. There's rejoicing in heaven. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. So this is what's wild, right? In the Exodus, God calls his people out of Egypt, destroys their enemy, and then Moses, in chapter 15, which we're not reading today, sings a song of praise. And then God gives them a meal from heaven. In Christ, God calls his people out of the slavery of sin, destroys our enemy, death, and we today sing songs of praise and partake of God's meal from heaven. And in the revelation of John, which we just read, God calls his people out of Babylon, destroys our enemies forever. The host of heaven sing praises to his name and then they sit down and partake of God's eternal wedding feast. We are living the Exodus, brothers and sisters, right now. And like God's people in Moses' day, we are being called to faithfully follow. faithfully follow our present protecting and way-making God. Knowing that even though all we may see to our left and to our right and to our front is sea, a wall of water and judgment, 
that he will lead us to a new land with new food where we'll praise him forevermore. And so listen, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, all I'm telling you is you have only be still. Fear not. Right, the moment it all goes awry for the Israelites is when they look at Egypt instead of the God who's present with them. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You, you need only be still this morning. And listen, if you're not a Christian, not yet a Christian, then you are invited by Christ himself this morning in his word to believe upon him and to join in the exodus, to be delivered from the pursuit of your enemy, to be folded into the family of God and to dwell in his glory forever. If you have any questions, I would love to talk to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. Grateful for what you've done on our behalf. Grateful that we are your people. And that for your people, you are a present, protecting, and way-making God. And that we can trust you. Thank you this morning, Lord, that in your presence we can sit and partake of this heavenly meal that you've provided in the broken body of Jesus and in the shed blood of Jesus for us. Thank you, Lord, that this is only a small, small taste of that glorious meal that is to come. And yet in some wild and wonderful way, it is, even now in this moment, actively sustaining us and giving us grace. So Lord, be kind to us continually according to your great faithfulness. Remember your covenant with us this morning and be gracious to us. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.